What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 76 of the Adult Education Podcast. I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and today we're talking to Associate Professor of Psychology at New York University, Tessa West. I'd like to start today by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode and any of the episodes that you've checked out. Thank you for sharing some of your time today with me and my project. I just so appreciate you. I've been looking at the analytics for this show, and it looks like the majority of you use Spotify to listen. It would be super helpful if you could leave a rating. If you could click on five stars, that would be huge. Now, what does this do? It really helps Spotify's algorithm know that people enjoy the show and that they should push it out to some new listeners. So a little rating would be very, very appreciated. Uh, a rating and review on any platform that you use is really helpful as well. So a very easy and free way to support the show if you're interested. Now, today we're talking about jerks at work. You all have had at least one experience with someone in your life who's either taken credit for your work or sat back and freeloaded while others worked hard on a project or even had that absentee boss that shows up once in a while and demands instant action when it's best for them. Well, Tessa West has been studying these jerks both through personal experiences and outside research projects. Tessa is an associate professor of psychology at New York University. She's a leading expert on interpersonal interaction and communication and and she's just published her first book called Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. I'm pretty well versed in toxic coworkers, so I was excited to chat with Tessa about this. She identifies the seven jerks you're most likely to encounter and gives us good advice for how to deal with them and stop them in their tracks. I had a lot of fun with this conversation, using a lot of personal experiences to try to get things going. Now, before we jump in, just a couple of quick notes. At the start of the conversation, you'll hear me reference that my daughter is there with me. I was literally feeding her lunch during the chat. Uh, Daddy daycare during the day can get a little crazy sometimes. Uh, also, just a little reminder to leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. I'd really appreciate that. Now, let's dive into this conversation with Tessa West. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm going to give you a warning right now that this is going to be a first for me today. And maybe for you, I don't know, but you are joining my daughter and I for lunch. Um, she did, Hi, sweetie. She did not take a nap <laughs> at the time she normally does. So she's going to be here and we'll see what happens. <laughs> It is what it is. I, ha I have an eight-year-old. I get it. <laughs> okay. Well, good. I'm glad that you at least get it. So she may interrupt uh, from time to time, and you may see me reaching over there. I'm just <laughs> shoving food in her mouth right now. <laughs> but I feel like this is the most appropriate time to have this situation as when talking to you, because we are going to be discussing work and uh, a little bit of how things have changed and how to deal with people in the office. That's right. And out of the office, when we're stuck on Zoom, we can talk about that as well, if you'd like. <laughs> well, I, I do. I, I kind of want to start uh, with one thing, because I was uh, doing some research before talking to you, and I listened to a different podcast that you were on, and, and you were discussing how there are bosses that I believe the phrase you used was veneer of importance, where they just want people in the office to feel more powerful and to feel special. I cannot even describe to you how perfect of a description that is of my bosses. Yeah, you know, the thing is about coming back is people need to feel motivated for a reason. And there's actually lots of good reasons, right? I mean, we know that if we don't social network with lots of different people, we just spend the, you know, our days talking to the same three people, we're less likely to get ahead, we're less creative and so forth. But sometimes bosses just are kind of staunchly in favor of bringing people back for the sake of coming back and making them feel like this is how things have always been done. We need to go back to the old ways. And when they get resistance, they're just kind of even more top down and controlling. And so you get a lot of reactions against that. 
I, uh, I was working from home at the beginning. I worked at home for about 15 months. I do a morning radio show. Uh, so one of my other team members was in the office and I was at home broadcasting live, worked out pretty well for the most part. I went back to the office and I was leaving the office like immediately when the show was over at 10 o'clock. The only people in our office were the on-air staff. There were no salespeople, no you know business folks at all, just the on-air people. So my boss yeah. the other day says to me, we're going to need to find a way that you stick around longer. And I said, well, why? <laughs> he yeah. looks like, well, you just What's need to point? be, you need to be visible. I said, for who? There's literally nobody here, but my co-hosts, like that, who else is going to see me? I don't understand what this is. And the best part is he only works in the office like two days a month. So even for him, he's only going to see me twice a month. What, what's the point? I mean, that's the biggest mistake bosses make is say, you have to come back to the office, but I'm not going to come back right. to the office. <laughs> My wife is a teacher, and her favorite thing is when you have school board meetings meeting virtually to decide if kids can go back in school. And she's like, I get it. In-school education is so much better. Like, I totally understand. But if you don't think it's safe enough for you to meet in person, why do you think it's safe enough for all of us to be trapped in a classroom all day long together? Oh, my God. Yeah, people are kind of missing, you know, the hypocrisy in their own behaviors right now. We see a lot of it, for sure. Well, this book is exactly what I needed in my life. And that's why I was actually so worried about my daughter not taking a nap when she normally does, because I've been waiting so anxiously for this conversation and for this interview. Because <laughs> looking at your book, it's called Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. I, I feel like I've got a representative from every single case that you make in this book in my office. And some people represent more than one. Yeah, I mean, I try to go with kind of the most common categories of people across different jobs. So, you know, one thing we often think of is it's really bad in my workplace, but if I just move to another company, I bet it's going to be wonderful because they do yoga all day and drink lattes and they have work-life balance and they talk about well-being and all this stuff. But the reality is there's only so many ways to skin a cat. And, you know, the bad people at work are the bad people at work, no matter where you work, they just kind of switch jobs all the time. And until we actually figure out how to kind of suss out the problems early and then just troubleshoot. And, and get rid of them from day one, we're just going to constantly be kind of fooling ourselves that the grass is greener on the other side, that we can just simply switch companies and it won't be as toxic or as difficult um, to work with. So these types really cut across all different kinds of careers and jobs and career stages as well. And you're pretty much going to find one of these people, at least, in every situation that you're in. And that's why I like about your book, too, is that you don't just rip these people apart the entire time. You talk about how to navigate them and how to get the best out of yourself while you're dealing with one of these jerks at the same time. Yeah, I think the key that we, we don't like to admit to ourselves that our jerks are often talented in some way, um, you know, even if we haven't quite figured out how to kind of harness those talents. So kiss up, kick downers, for example, torture everyone at the same level as them and beneath them, but they kiss up to the boss. And the reason why the boss likes them is because they bring some skill set, you know, to the job that others don't have. Mm -hmm. And we don't like to admit that that's the case, you know, that maybe we can learn a thing or two from them because they're torturing us all the time. Um, you know, and the same is true for bulldozers. They take over meetings, they're loud, they're obnoxious, but they have voice and they get heard and they get attention you know, and they have power and influence. So let's figure out how we can kind of harness those things, um, not just to deal with these people, but to actually move ahead at work and, and befriend them and, you know, sort of don't, don't avoid them, but redirect their behaviors in ways that can actually help us. The bulldozers are an interesting case because I know they make a lot more noise and they get a lot of attention because they make noise. But in my experience, the people that I would consider bulldozers 
also do the least amount of work. Like they make the most yeah. noise. They're the people that when everybody was working from home, they were the first to reply and they would always reply thank you or whatever to every single email. But they're the ones that aren't actually accomplishing anything. And I, it's just fascinating yeah, how they can get away with it. That's true. I mean, the bulldozer is usually the combination of a free rider who does the things that have the veneer of work but they don't actually do anything. So they're really good at taking leadership roles and then delegating responsibility of their job to other people, you know, and sounding authoritative. So they, they have the veneer of someone in power who knows what they're talking about, but all they're doing is actually often kind of delegating responsibilities to others and then, you know, swooping in and taking over processes, you know, when it's time to. So, you know, I haven't had a couple of coworkers who are also this kind of combination of free rider and bulldozer combined they tend to be um, really great with, you know, kind of punchy elevator speeches, one-liners. They get the boss to pay attention to them, and that's often how they get ahead, even if behind the scenes they're, they're not actually doing very much work. Yeah, and it's really tough if you're in a situation where you have that absentee boss that you also talk about in the book, too, because the boss is only relying on what they're hearing and what little they are seeing because they aren't necessarily involved. And, you know, we kind of have a situation like that in my office where my main boss only comes to town. It's supposed to be once a week, but occasionally it turns into twice a month. And, you know, it's yeah. tough to it's tough to make sure that they are understanding the toxicity of the situation, because when they're around, everybody's on best behavior, smiles yeah. and everyone's bouncing around around the office, but when they're not yeah. there, it becomes a whole different environment. Yeah. I mean, one problem that bosses have is they assume that no news is good news. And most bosses operate this way. They actually think, and you know, that we're going to complain to them, but most people never actually complain to their boss. So kind of the best thing they can do is set up like short, frequent meetings with people where they don't say, how are things going? Is everything great? You know, no one will ever give negative feedback, but they have to ask really specific questions. Like, is it really clear what work you're supposed to be doing this week and have you picked up the slack for anyone that you hadn't maybe planned on at the beginning of the week these kinds of specific questions will get people to open up and actually say exactly what's wrong but if you simply just say tell me if anything is up people won't complain especially if you're in a culture where you just you know you don't talk badly about each other that's just considered culturally inappropriate you know so they have to ask these very specific questions before i go into my next thought i have to ask you uh, the people that you do discuss in this book, are the names changed to not, you know, <laughs> violate their freedoms or whatever? <laughs> yes, there's a lot of control F. <laughs> have you heard from anybody that knows it's them for sure? I have gotten a lot of people coming to me and saying, was I that person? And they weren't. So that's kind of the more surprising <laughs> thing. One person came up to me in the bathroom and said, should I be worried <laughs> when the book came out? And I'm like, I don't know. Should you be worried? Like, why are you worried about this? You know, so lots of people think that I'm actually talking about them when I'm not, which just shows that, you know, hindsight's 2020 and how we treat people. We all of a sudden get very paranoid if someone's going to sort of publicly talk about us. But in the moment, we don't really care or we're not aware of it. I was a little nervous to do this interview in general because I thought to myself, you know, I, I want to be honest and I want to have a good open conversation with Tessa and I, I want to use examples from my personal life. But I know that my coworkers will very easily be able to figure out who I'm talking. But then I realized they also don't give a damn about anything that I'm doing. So <laughs> I can't imagine any of them will actually listen to this yeah. podcast. We uh, have a spotlight effect, right? We think everyone's paying attention to us all the time, but we're all walking around thinking that. So we can't possibly be paying attention to each other all the time. Right, right. I've got a, uh, I, I believe the phrase is free rider. I keep using, I always use the term coattail rider. So that's what keeps floating through my head. But I think the idea is there. And it, it's so difficult to navigate it. Cause I'm also a pretty responsible person where if I see that 
their thing is not getting done. I just pick up the slack because I know it's got to get done. You know, we work uh, morning radio show can be kind of a fast paced environment where you just got to make sure things happen. And it's so difficult to relay that to anybody else that you're like, wow, this person really is just sitting here and not really accomplishing a whole lot. But how do you tell them? You know, how do you tell someone about that? Yeah, I think, you know, free riders are, are very smart about targeting conscientious people like you. And so the, the research shows that the, the more conscientious the group of people, the more you're going to actually overcompensate for a free rider. So you're going to actually perform better with a free rider at work than you would if they weren't there. And that just reinforces their behavior. So our temptation when we figure this out is to go yell at them and tell them we figured out you're not doing anything, you're giving up your responsibilities. But typically what happens with free riders is they're already disengaged and now they're going to really want to go kind of hide under a rock when you do that. So you have to re-engage them by kind of first bringing up what about them do you like? Why did you want to work with them in the first place? And frame it around sort of missing that thing. Even if that's not even really true so much anymore, it makes them feel missed and it makes them feel needed. And people are just much more responsive to that approach than the what the hell were you thinking, you know, asking Bob to do all your work for you. Then they're just going to sort of cower and hide. But if you approach them that way and then you say, let's work together to figure out how we're going to get you sort of back on board. They're going to think, oh, yeah, they actually really miss me around here. And they're much more likely to be engaged. So here's the scenario. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So let's go back to the free riders for a second. Um, say you have per- somebody that's kind of slacking off and somebody else is picking up the extra slack. Like I'll use my own personal example. If something doesn't happen, my boss will come to me. Even if it's not my responsibility, he'll immediately come to me and say, I'm kind of his number two. So it'll be like, he'll come to me and say, why didn't X, Y, Z happen? And I'll say, well, that's that person's responsibility, but he'll still be upset with me that I didn't watch over that. So it's, it's kind of like a, it's not micromanaging, but it's kind of a weird micromanaging at the same time. So what would I do in that situation? Like it's kind of double work for me. I can't win in that scenario. Yeah. I mean, you can't win. So I I would talk to your boss about, you know, we need to create some sort of checklist of what everyone's work is supposed to be at the beginning of the week and whether everyone did what they promised. So what free writers often do is they say they're going to do something and the last minute they don't and you have to pick up the slack. If there's just a clear record of them promising to do X, Y, and Z and you and two other people ended up doing X, Y, and Z, it's much easier to go to the boss and say, they agreed to do these things. They didn't do any of these things. Here's how that work was actually distributed. We need to figure out how to get this person to do the work they agreed to do ahead of time. They're more likely to care. I mean, it's very hard for you to just say, I'm just not going to do the thing. Let's just all suffer as a consequence. And free riders know that. So you have to keep track of it and have very explicit things that they failed to do. Simply complaining to your boss that they're not picking up the slack is just going to tell your, your boss is going to say to you, well, figure it out. Right. You know, and the best way to figure it out is to go to that free rider and say, here's the 19 things you agreed to do this week that you didn't do. Um, we miss you. Let's get you to do those things. <laughs> you know. Uh, let's talk about bosses for a second. I actually found myself sort of feeling bad for the micromanager because, you know, reading through it, it's they, they seem to be an annoying person that you wouldn't really want to deal with. But at the same time, it feels like they're still trying to do their best. Like they're actively trying. It's just not working in the way that it should. Yeah, I think most people think micromanagers are just really insecure people who are, you know, um, in a very Freudian way, sort of taking it out on all of us. But the reality is most of them aren't getting very much um, guidance from above. So most people are promoted at work, not because they're good at managing, but because they were really good at their old job. And so what ends up happening is they then manage people who held their old job and they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to manage. So they try to just do their old job through that person because they're conscientious and it makes them feel better. 
that combined with no leadership training with, you know, too many reporting layers, too many bosses and so forth makes them micromanage because it makes them feel like they're actually working. Um, but they, they spend all this time in the world. They work the hardest, but they get the least done. And that's kind of the outcome of that. You mentioned leadership training, and that's something I've been having discussions with people uh, recently. I feel like, and maybe this is unique to my position, but maybe not. I feel like leadership training is not something that is as focused on by people. Like, I feel like I have a lot of managers. I don't have a lot of leaders. And I, that to me is, it's kind of sad in a way. Like I want someone yeah. that walks in the building and when I see them, I go, damn it, we're going to do a good job today, you know? But yeah. other, but instead I have, oh, that person's going to come get me if I don't get this done. And that's a very different vibe. Yeah, we don't get leadership training at work. Almost none of us do. I mean, we get, here's how to do X, Y, and Z job, yeah. but we don't get how to handle low level conflict, you know, how to make sure that when you're feeling anxious at work, you don't take it out on your coworkers you know, how to spot people like his FDRs. No one learns that. And, you know, I do a lot of work in the doctor-patient interaction space and even doctors and physicians where the biggest predictor of things like medical adherence and taking pills is whether you have good interpersonal leadership skills. They don't train. They, they get something like 45 minutes the entire time they're in med school. So even in context where it really matters, we don't focus on these things. We call them like soft skills or innate abilities. You know, people do training sessions for, you know, 90 minutes or something like that, but it really doesn't get at these kind of low level issues. And we, we spent a lot of time just avoiding that leaders, honestly, <laughs> just kind of hiding from them. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, especially if it is someone that doesn't really inspire you to do the best work, you're just going to kind of get what you got to get done and move on. Yeah. You don't, you don't really have the same investment in that business, in that job. And that that's really the important thing. I think if you have a good leader, then you feel sort of invested in what you're doing and it makes you want to work harder. It makes you want to do the best work that you can. If you just have a manager, you're like, you're just clocking in and clocking out and that's yeah. it. Yeah, you get a lot of like revolving door of talent happening when leaders aren't great, um, mediocre ones or problematic ones. But there's all this great work showing that even in exit interviews, no one tells their boss why they left. Right. You know, the number one reason people report leaving is compensation, but the number one reason they actually leave is bad management, bad leaders. Um, so we don't get feedback, you know, so there's a reason why we all still suck at this because we really don't get feedback and we don't get training. We don't learn how to give feedback, especially upward feedback to people who hold power over us. It's a very difficult thing to do. Almost nobody does it and they're terrified of it. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, and I don't want to keep going off the the subject of the book here, but I think that's also interesting because I think people uh, are not able to take constructive criticism, you know, or feedback, as you put it. Like even in the job, it's so difficult to sit down and have that conversation with somebody. Like we uh, doing radio, we have meetings once in a while where they critique our on air performance, which we kind of need. It's never comfortable to sit in a room yeah. and hear your voice for an hour and and have Ugh, them pick apart. Yeah. I, I mean, you feel like they're attacking you personally when they're like, "Well, what you said there really wasn't good." And it's like, "Well, that's kind." of how I felt at the moment. That sucks. Sorry. Yeah. But like, I, I have a coworker that will literally cry in every meeting. So my boss will cut the meeting off because that person is crying and he goes, Oh, oh, oh we're, we're done. We, we've done enough so far. And I'm like, well, that's nice because the meeting is short. I don't have to deal with it, but it's not getting us to where we have to go. Like we're not, because yeah. we can't take the constructive, the constructive criticism to benefit us moving forward. I think we can both not take the criticism and we can, we're also very bad at delivering it. Um, so, you know, one thing that I learned a lot in researching for this book is marital therapy has figured out exactly how people give effective constructive criticism to spouses. And we've known for decades exactly 
what that pattern looks like as opposed to a pattern where you criticize, the person gets defensive, you stonewall, then they engage in reverse blame, you know, which is normally what happens at work. So we can learn a lot from that research on how to deliver these things. And you know, what we know actually works is it's okay to criticize as long as you do it the right way. So you kind of want to open with something positive. You want to focus on the specific exact behavior that they did and make it as small as possible. So for a micromanager, you'd want to say, you know, you give me 20 minutes to respond to emails and then you bother me, you know, you ping me if I didn't respond. That's not enough time for me to get back to you instead of saying, you smother me and it's impossible. You know, that's, that's too much of a criticism and it's not specific, so sure. it's not actionable. You know, once you realize that, you know, kind of leading with a compliment, following with a specific behavior, coming up with an action plan together, you get into that pattern with people. They're less defensive. They're less likely to cry. Um, you know, and kind of at the end, ask, do you have any feedback from me of what I could do better? And bosses really have to learn to do that because it makes people feel much more comfortable if they know the conversations back and forth. And they're not just going to be like getting this negative feedback for 45 minutes and learning how to grin and bear it. Uh, before I jump back into the book, one last question about uh, kind of what we're talking about here. And, you know, we've heard this term, the great resignation floating around yeah. and a lot of things that people reference is money or benefits, which I'm sure is a factor for a lot of people. But I have to imagine a major factor is just workplace culture that people are packing yeah. up and saying, I'm not putting up with this. I can go somewhere else. I mean, are you finding that in your research? Yeah, there's a huge study that just came out that um, toxic workplace culture explains 10 times more variance in people resigning from jobs than compensation and the where they work thing. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we thought everyone was resigning because they didn't want to go back to the office and they weren't getting paid enough. Now we know that that's true, but, but it's one-tenth of the size of just not wanting to deal with jerks anymore. And not, you know, horrible things like, you know, HR-worthy problems, but everyday low-level things. They're also very intolerant of companies where the CEO is horrible. Even if they don't personally experience interactions with that person, they don't want like this trickle down from the top where they know that if the CEO or the C-suite acts a certain way, eventually it's going to hit their manager and their team. And they're just like much more, you know, sort of um, on edge about that possibility. And they're not even willing to risk it. So uh, back to jerks at work. <laughs> Sorry that we got derailed there, but that, that really interesting chain of thought that I think we just had. Uh, the credit stealer, there was something in the credit stealer that you found that really, it, it kind of surprised me. I never noticed it before reading about it in your book. And now I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, that happens so much where the credit stealer will take the credit, but will also give you credit. It's a very sly <laughs> move that when yeah. done right, you don't even realize it's actually happening. <laughs> yeah. Some of the worst credit stealers I've seen give public credit to people and sometimes for things they didn't even do. It's a little bit arbitrary. They do it publicly. They do it in front of powerful people. They often do it to look like an ally or a good boss that's trying to, you know, lift people up. And it's a great cover because when you come complain about them, you know, they say, what are you talking about? I boosted you so much in front of these other people. And they're just much more likely to get away with it when they're publicly granting credit and privately stealing it. I think for me, I, I do I do think the credit stealer is one of the toughest people to deal with, in my opinion, because it is just so hard to prove, especially if there's ideas 
being thrown around in a brainstorming meeting. I just had this happen to me in my office, and I'm not trying to say that I'm an angel. I'm sure some people would say that I'm a jerk too at times. I'm 100% <laughs> believe that. Where we were kind of brainstorming an idea, you know, to name a concert series we're putting together. And, you know, one person calls out something, then somebody else calls out the same thing, and that second person is the one that gets the credit. And you're kind of like, well, what about person A that actually gave yeah. the idea the first time? And it's so difficult to raise your hand in that meeting and go, well, hey, I said it first, because you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to sound like whiny in front of everybody else, you know, but, but it stinks because you do still want to get the credit for the good work that you're putting in. Yeah. I think sort of one thing is we like to accuse people of stealing credit, but often it's a problem of credit granting. Yeah. It's that people, um, some people are just more likely to be granted credit for ideas than others. And you know, what we know from the research is these typically tend to be people with the trappings of a leader. So, you know, men historically have gotten kind of more credit people who sound authoritative and dominant when they talk, they get credit for things. And they might not intentionally even be trying to steal credit. They're just, you know, kind of restating what you said, um, but others give them credit. And so the best thing that we can do is help each other out and help echo each other's contributions and say, oh, you know, thanks Bob for restating that. Um, but it was actually Jeff who initially said it. And I really liked your idea, Jeff. Right. You know, other people have to actually weigh in and help because I do agree that you look like a whiner you look like a third grader if you raise your hand and say, that was mine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and we don't want to look like that. We don't want to look whiny. Um, we also have to do a good job of sort of documenting things right after yeah. the meeting instead of waiting too long because we forget. And, you know, um, we lose what's called the source tag. And so sometimes we think we came up with something because we heard it, even though we didn't. And, you know, um, we assume it was our idea. But in reality, we had just picked it up. And so it's not even intentional. And that can happen as well. The intentional stuff, you really have to document who said what and when and echo each other's contributions and be better allies. But I agree, it's hard to do it with self. Yeah, oh, 100%. Um, I wonder, I, I know when a book gets published, it's generally been done for almost a year before it actually comes out just because of the process. So you had some really great work in the pandemic that you could do some research on before finishing up the book. I, I have to imagine there's so much more that's happened though that you're probably like, oh my gosh, I really could have done like this or yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's such an ever-changing world. I actually wrote it during the pandemic. I'm like, how many years are we into this pandemic? Know, right. <laughs> I remember my kid being home and running around. And at the time we were all in lockdown and, you know, people would call me and say, what is this so-called Zoom thing we're using? And what does Dirk's <laughs> work have to do with this new technology called Zoom? And I wrote a little bit about it. And then by the time my editor got it, she's like, everyone knows what Zoom is. What are you talking about? So I realized like, I, I can't date myself too much because sure. this is changing so much every few you know, weeks or so, we're kind of learning something new. But one thing is true, and that's the jerks at work thrive in this hybrid work environment and this remote work environment, because they often can get away with things that others just simply don't see them doing. You know, we don't act out publicly at work anymore, and we don't have water cooler conversations. So there isn't shared information in the same way there was pre-pandemic. You know, people like a freeloader can just ask everybody to do their work, and these people might not even talk to each other. So they're not even knowing that we're all kind of taking up the slack. Um, so yeah, they, they've kind of run wild a little bit um, in the pandemic and definitely it's worth kind of thinking about how these things look differently now than back in the day when we all went to work. Uh, my, my last thought is kind of on the same lines. And it, when I was working from home, it relieved a lot of tension for me. And I actually felt like mentally the, the healthiest that I've been in a long time because I was removed from all of that 
office yeah. drama and all of the people that I didn't get along with or whatever the situation may be. And then going back in, it's like a flood of just all of that happening again. I, I know you yeah. studied a lot of people in the office when you're putting this book together and you work with interpersonal communication. Is being in the office like a super important thing? Like, how do you feel about that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends on what you do. So some people have jobs where they really don't have to interact with other people at all. You know, so if you're a computer programmer and you're just coding all day, but other people have jobs where they really get better at their job when they have more kinds of um, informal communication at work. So we know this great study just came out on Microsoft Teams that um, teams are less creative when nobody goes to work. And that's not because they're not spending face time with their teams, they are doing that on Zoom. They're not spending face time with people outside of their teams that have ideas that they haven't even thought of, sure. that have expertise that are outside their area. And then I would end with kind of the number one way we get ahead at work is by doing what's called invisible labor. So things like giving advice to people, meeting one-on-one, -on -one, um, leaving our office door open for people to stop by. And leaders and bosses notice this and they realize who's kind of a rising leader. But when you're working from home, you're doing all this work outside of the view of managers and leaders. They don't see how well networked you are and how much you're helping others because they're literally not there. So it's harder for people to get ahead when they're just working at home, you know, especially in places where social networking is really critical to climbing up that ladder. Well, Tessa, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I love this book. The book is called Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. In another life, I would love to do what you do. I'm fascinated by people and studying the way we communicate. I was a sociology minor when I was in college. I just, I just love the way that we work together or don't work together, however the case may be. So I'm fascinated by this work. I love hearing you talk. I've listened to a couple of their podcasts that you've been a part of. So thank you for sharing uh, all of your information. Is there a place that people can go if they want to find more about you or follow along with your journey? Yeah, feel free to go to my website. It's tessawestauthor.com. Um, I have a couple quizzes in my book. Are you a jerk and are you an ally? And I'm I have so them afraid to take them. Get immediate feedback. Yeah, they're fun to do. Um, so yeah, and then there's a, a link of where you can buy the book as well. Great. Well, Tessa, thank you again so much for your time. I appreciate it. And it looks like we made it through lunch. Okay. We're surviving over here. I was like going to say your baby is a miracle. I could never would have done that. You want to know the secret? <laughs> I've got cocoa melon on on the other side, just loud oh, enough yeah. that it's not coming through the microphone. <laughs> so we're good to go. Nice, nice. <laughs> well, hey, good luck with everything. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Big thank you to Tessa West for her time. Oh, what a great conversation that was. I felt so good coming out of that. I don't know why, but I just, I don't know. I was like riding on cloud nine. The book Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers, and What to Do About Them is available wherever you get your books. And thank you to all of you for listening today. I hope you're able to get some inspiration for how to handle those jerks in your life. Until next time, be well.